And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. It is Monday, the last week of October. Where does the time go? I tell you, it is just one of those things, right? Good to have everybody with us today. If you are with us live, the chat is open. Comments are active over on Facebook, and uh, you can leave a comment uh, and join the chat on both YouTube and Odyssey. If you're on Odyssey, you've got to have an account in order to uh, leave a comment. It's part of their security settings. Try to make sure that we don't get the spam bots like we get over on YouTube. We are broadcasting live to Odyssey, YouTube, and Facebook. And this show is available as a podcast. If anybody has a preference that you want to listen to us instead of watch us, that's fine too. The email address, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. And we have a newsletter. We do invite you to sign up for that. Because not everybody gets notifications all the time. Uh, and at some point in the history, in the timeline of your subscribing to one of our channels, those channels could very well kick you off for whatever reasons. That's happened a few times. We've had some people who have subscribed to our channel on YouTube, and YouTube suddenly has taken them off, and they don't know how that happened. YouTube assures me that they don't unsubscribe people arbitrarily like that <coughs> okay whatever you say uh, going on right now over on our Twitch channel Ryan our intern from Harding University is playing Celeste he's doing a playthrough over there and in the midst of this particular broadcast he is going to cross a threshold for us and unlock an achievement we're going on 500 hours of broadcast time over on our twitch channel i'm not sure exactly what that's going to get us but it's an achievement they mark it as an achievement so hey why why not right so uh twitch.tv slash sci-fi for me is is the address there for anybody who wants to follow us there. We are very, 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 very close to 100 followers over on our Twitch channel. It's not a lot, but, you know, it's something. It's an achievement. And I will take whatever success I get in the process, right? All right, so over the weekend, let me let me start here. I, I, I want to do... I have been debating with myself whether or not to say anything about the Alec Baldwin situation because technically if I'm if I'm holding to my own rules technically it doesn't fall into the science fiction fantasy horror wheelhouse because they were shooting a western and it's Alec Baldwin and whatnot but I do feel like I need to say a couple of things here very quickly uh, before I get into the reg the the main topic 
Uh, what happened is a tragedy, yes. And I have already started seeing a lot of conspiracy theory spinning about various different things. Uh, and I'm not going I'm not going down that rabbit hole. But a couple of things about firearms safety on the set of a TV show or a movie production. Uh, having been in this business for 33 years, remember, I know how the sausage is made. I have been on set when, when the production is using firearms. <clears throat> and this was a while back, but it still holds true. I mean, the, the, the rules and the requirements, the safety requirements for having weapons on set, whether it's a firearm or a knife or a sword or whatever, the, <clears throat> the thing is... There are procedures involved in any production that's going to be using weapons. And, and the first thing is that you limit the number of people who actually have access to the weapon. In, in this case, we're talking about a firearm. And I've seen so many people talk about prop guns being a fake gun. Well, no. Prop, there's a lot of people that are using the word prop not quite accurately. A little bit of inside baseball here. A prop, just in general terms, is anything that an actor puts in his hands and interacts with on the set during a scene. If there's a pack of cigarettes lying on the bar, if it stays there the entire time, it's part of the set dressing. If the actor picks it up, it's a prop. Anything that the actor comes into contact with and I pick it up and I hold it in my hand and I do something with it, that's a prop. And it's the responsibility of the property master. The set decoration, all of the stuff that's on the, on the scene that nobody ever touches, like all of this stuff behind me here, the signs and the, and the spinner rack and the clocks and everything, that's set dressing. That's the art department. It's a completely different uh, group of people in the crew that are responsible for the look in the scene. <clears throat> when it comes to firearms, generally you have somebody on set specifically tasked with the responsibility of managing the firearms. You have an armorer or a weapons master or a gun wrangler. I mean, th th there's different titles, but there's, there's a specific person on the crew who's responsible for the weapons. And... That person is essentially one of two or three people on the set who has any right and responsibility and authority to be handling the weapon. It's not, you know, it, it's not the, the grips, it's not the, the lighting people, it's not the director, it's not the director of photography, it's not the camera crew. Nobody is allowed to touch that thing unless they are one of the armorers, one of the, one of the weapons wranglers, or they put it in the hand of the actor who's going to be using it. Those are the only people who should be touching it. And at any point where there's any kind of a question of whether or not this thing's been loaded, there are several people who can call a halt to the production and say, we need, to, we need a weapons check. 
The other thing is <clears throat> the you know the plexiglass barrier that's in front of a crew. You've seen you've seen some images. And there's there's some video floating around of a of a behind the scenes clip from Halloween Kills, where Jamie Lee Curtis is firing a rifle and the camera crew is there in front. You'll see that plexiglass that's in front of them. I have actually been behind that plexiglass on a production. During we were shooting a uh, we were shooting a gunfight in a hospital hallway. The very first thing on set when weapons are on set is we have a safety meeting. You have to have a safety meeting. The safety meeting is everybody on the crew is there, and the assistant director and the and the armorer and whoever is responsible they sit there and say, okay, these are the weapons that are on set. Nobody touch them. Don't do anything with them. Keep your earplugs in. Keep your your safety glasses on. All of these different things. There's a whole safety meeting about the procedures and the and the and the requirements and the everything that happens when you have weapons on set. Things you have to watch watch out for. The risks that are involved, and it doesn't sound like anything like that happened on this production. Savasan uh, was a grip. A grip is somebody who is responsible for moving things. <clears throat> that's the that's the the short answer. Uh, grips are generally part of either the set or the lighting department, where the the they'll bring in uh, stands for lights, stands for flags and nets to block the light. They'll you know they'll lay track for the dolly. Um, Sometimes there'll be what's called a swing gang, which is the people responsible for changing out the decorations on the set. So grips kind of have a different thing. The key grip is the person who's in charge of the grips. He's the first grip. And then you have the best boy grip, who's the second in command of the grip team. And it could very well be that you only have two grips. So I've been a key grip. I've had four or five different guys uh, in the crew when I was a key grip. And all of these grips, okay, you guys... You guys are responsible for lights. You stick next to the camera people and all of that. So different grips have different responsibilities, but they're they're basically the movers. And then you have the electricians who run all of the power. And the electricians are kind of like grips, only they're specific to the lighting and uh, and the electric crew. So generators, uh, any lights that are going out, uh, anything like that. <clears throat> so that's what a grip is. But the assistant director is responsible for having a safety meeting before they do any kind of shooting on set with a with a with a weapon. It's even you know, it's firing blanks. Okay, fine. You still have safety issues. Uh, you know, I've seen mention a lot of Brandon Lee when when uh, there was a there was an incident on The Crow. John Eric Hexum is another one. He messing around. And he pulls, you know, this shoot, this shoots blanks. It means, it doesn't mean nothing comes out of the gun. And John Eric Hexum puts it up to his temple and fires the blank, and the the wad of paper or whatever it was that was inside, that's the blank ammunition, went and popped him in the head, and he's and he's dead. This kind of stuff is not to be taken lightly, and. I have been racking my brain trying to figure out why 
on earth, there would be a live round in that weapon. The only thing that I can think of, and this is a, this is a stretch here, the only thing I can think of is that there's, there's a, if you're shooting a close-up and they're loading the, the, the pistol, maybe you need a live round to look like a live round. I don't know, but I cannot think of why you would have a live round on set at all. That's, as we've seen, that's a disaster waiting to happen. But it sounds like that there were several questionable practices going on on this set. I don't know if it was cutting corners. They don't want to spend as much money or whatnot. But it's it's one of those things where a lot of people either did not understand the job they had to do or they shirked their responsibility. In any case, it's negligence at, at best. At worst, and, you know, who knows? In this day and age, some of the conspiracy theories may actually be right. Who knows? I've seen, uh, I've seen mention of uh, this director of photography. Her husband apparently is a lawyer and is apparently involved with the people that were involved with the whole Russia thing. Who knows? I'm not I, I can't speak to that. I don't I don't know. I can't think of a reason why anybody would want her dead. And <clears throat> it bothers me that so many people are making light of all of this. And yes, Alec Baldwin has said some very stupid things over the years. He's posted some very very stupid, ridiculous things over on Twitter. And I, he's just as responsible as anybody on the crew who handed, handed him the gun. Not just because he's a producer, but because the first rule of gun safety is that you always assume the gun is loaded. Always. Somebody hands it to you and the... The, the slide is all all back and there's no clip and you can see that there's a, there's no round in the chamber you still treat it like it's loaded you have to be careful about these things even even if you're just doing blanks dummy rounds like like Sophie says dummy rounds can, can look just like the real thing sometimes and they make these things called uh, 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 snap caps, I think is what they're called. They're basically, they're, they're, they're bullets that are made to malfunction. So when you're training, I'm told, you could put these in. So as you're doing your target practice, one of them won't fire, which basically simulates a misfire so you can practice clearing the chamber and moving to the next one. So you, there are fake, quote-unquote, fake bullets around <clears throat> and blanks blanks don't just pop and make a noise it's not like like uh, like snob says it's not like a cap gun 
But ultimately, the responsibility for that firearm is the person holding the firearm. And the other, the second rule, I mean, there are four rules. Another rule of gun safety is you never point it at anything you don't want broken or dead. You always have to be mindful of where the barrel's pointed. Whether it's loaded or not, whether it's open or not, whether it's firing blanks or real rounds, doesn't matter. You always have to be careful of where the thing is pointed. And if somebody handed him a gun with a live round and didn't realize it, now I, I get it, you're using Colt, uh, whatever whatever those, those weapons were from the late 1800s, it's not easy to see. You can't just you know, spin the barrel and see if there's anything in there. You have to actually open the whole thing up and see. I get that. But somebody should have been doing that. And somebody had to put that live round in there. And that's what I want to find out. Who put it there and why? I feel bad for Baldwin. We don't know what the legal consequences of this are going to be. At the very least, I would expect probably a manslaughter charge. But if it comes out that somebody put that live round in there deliberately, then that's a whole nother kettle of fish. But I think we should restrain ourselves and refrain from all of the conspiracy theory type of posts. I saw something this morning. There was a there was an, uh, a quote-unquote article. It's not real. An article about her uh, her next project being a documentary on stuff that's been going on in Hollywood. That's fake. We have to be careful because this kind of stuff gets perpetuated on social media and there's all sorts of false narratives that come out of incidents like this. And you're also going to have the gun control people who are going to come out, you know, all the more reason why we've got to get rid of our guns, right? But it's, it's one of those things where I have been in that scene. I've been in that kind of scene. I've been right behind the camera during the gunfight. And there are very specific safety rules and procedures that have to be followed. And it sounds like that wasn't in this case. Whether, you know, and, and a couple of misfires prior to this happening. And the crew, the, the union crew, apparently had walked off the set because of safety concerns and uh, uh, pay concerns. Lots of different issues on this production. So, who, who, was, who was minding the store? And yes, MS, this is the same thing that happened to Brandon Lee. Well, no. It's not the same thing. There wasn't a live round involved with Brandon Lee. Brandon Lee got killed with, by accident with a blank. Uh, just like John Eric Axel. Uh Mindy's, Mindy's saying a statement was given that Baldwin was extremely cautious when handling. I, may, maybe he was. But he should have checked. I mean, if somebody if somebody hands it to him, see, and I've seen I've seen a lot of debate back and forth like this, where people are saying, well, 
you know, the actor shouldn't be responsible for checking. Yeah, the, the actor needs to know. The actor needs to make sure. And I don't know why the assistant director would be the one to hand him the gun. Because the armorer is there, and if you have somebody who's responsible for the weapons, they're the ones handling the gun. But if they're telling Baldwin that it's a cold gun, that it's not loaded, and it's safe, he should still be careful with it. And we've heard stories, they were rehearsing a scene, and he, and he pulls, and apparently he's supposed to fire, fire the blank toward the camera crew for the shot. And he did it, and a, and a, and this live round goes off. And I I can't even begin to imagine where Baldwin's headspace is right now. For all of the the rhetoric and the 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 bad blood and the the mean things that people say about each other. I I would not I would not wish for this kind of circumstance for anybody to go through this. And and yeah, you always check as best you can. Uh so I you know it's it's ultimately it's going to you know there's affidavits he was rehearsing a scene. I, I've I've seen, you know, people saying that he was he was ranting on set about Trump. I don't see any reason why he would be doing that. If he, It makes sense that he's rehearsing the scene. It makes sense that he's going through the motions. Okay, this is what we do. Because they're doing what they call blocking. They're figuring out, okay, well, I'm going to stand here. The camera's here. I move this here. I do this. I say this line and bang. I can see that happening. That's a lot more plausible than Alec Baldwin was doing a ramp a rant about Trump on set and and the thing misfired. <clears throat> I don't I don't think I don't think he did it on purpose at the at 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 best. I really don't. I don't but somebody put that live round in the gun. And my question is, what were live rounds doing there in the first place? Because there's no reason for it at all. Um, I see Hex Allen Comics in the chat. Hello. I see Cam1138. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. But I, I felt like I needed to say something because it's an elephant in the room. Everybody's talking about it. And I have some experience with it. Uh, and one of the things, too, also is we never allowed the actors when we were shooting this when we were shooting this gunfight in the in the hospital all of the shots went past the camera the there was never a time when a gun was pointed right at the camera because of the because of the risk and i get it the scene is you know they're shooting this way they're shooting this way so it, we're off bore, as it were. We're off. We're off axis, shooting up at the actor, and we do it both ways because everybody's firing at each other. You got both angles, but you you do everything you can 
to minimize the risk. Limited number of people in the crew right there in only the people that have to be there. Everybody else clear out, get out of the way, get out of the field of fire. You got the plexiglass in front of the camera. Everybody's down. Everybody's got safety spectacles on, ear earplugs, all of this stuff. So you have to you have to take all of these precautions, and it doesn't sound like they did on this. And ultimately, that's Baldwin's responsibility as a producer, in addition to whoever else is in the in in the producer line up to the C-suite level. Executive producers, line producers, whoever. So those those are that's some responsibility that Baldwin will have to take. But I I'd hate to be him right now. That's for sure. All right, I I went on that a little bit longer than I than I had planned to. Here was we here's here's what we do when we get back. We're gonna go ahead and take a break. When we get back, uh, we will check in with uh, with Ryan and see how he's doing, and we'll get into the actual topic of the show: um, the 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 lack of creativity these days. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. You know the film is going to end. Ba- it's going to end badly for all of these people, and you don't care. Horribly, disgusting, revolting. Did that just happen? There is no kill like overkill. I was so scared that I wanted to take my lower lip and pull it out and pull it over my head so I could cover my eyes. Foreign Bodies, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. Hi everyone, it's McKenna Talley from Salacious Crumbs. Just a quick reminder for all the latest Star Wars news and rumor, be sure to check out our show Salacious Crumbs right here on Sci-Fi For Me TV, Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 Central. Back live from the bunker, Jason Hunt here, along with all of you, and I, I don't know about some of this, we just roll along here, do do the best we can, as much as we can, right? Ryan's still over there playing Celeste. I think we've probably crossed 500 hours by now, so we'll see when he's done with his broadcast. It takes a while for the for the statistics to catch up, but uh, uh, twitch.tv slash sci-fi for me. Any of you who want to go and see him over there. And okay, so let's let's talk about creativity. I was watching a video uh, from Perch over the weekend, comics by Perch. The link is in the description here. And Perch is talking about how how he he frequently will get comments and questions, people accusing him of basically sitting on the fence and being a little wishy-washy and not uh, not committing to this idea that there's a woke agenda in comics. And uh, 
I think an argument could be made for something like that. But Perch made a, a, an interesting comment, basically to, to the effect that in the comics industry, it's a, it's a combination of a number of different things. And there could be some people who are creatives, uh, people who are writing or, or, or doing the art for some of these comics, and maybe they have an agenda, maybe they have a personal agenda for making all of the characters gay or whatever. But Perch also made the point that even if that's happening with various different people on the, on the creative side of things, you also have the fact that none of this is very good in terms of skill and talent and the editor's don't have quite what it takes and the pay scale is bad so you're not getting you're not getting the best of the best because you can't afford you're not you, you can't afford them you're not going you're not willing to pay the page rate that you need for some of the better people and it got me thinking about about creativity and the stuff in comics which is bad the stuff is bad because the people who are making it are not very creative. And that sent me down a little rabbit hole of thought as to why they're not creative. Why is J.J. Abrams... And you, can, you can apply this to things outside of just the comics industry. This is across the board, everything. Why creatives are not very creative. Alex Kurtzman, you know, the, there were plenty of accusations throughout the entire first season of Picard that there wasn't anything original here. He's cribbed from other sources. He's cribbed from Next Generation. He's cribbed from video games and, you know, all of these different things that we've seen this stuff before, you know. Discovery, we've seen all of this before. And the... The idea that all of this is being done to appeal to the Twitter Tumblr crowd, that can be part of it. But also consider the, the, the generation that we're talking about here. Uh, and, and, you know, people make the joke, and I don't remember if it's Gen Z or if it's millennials. Every, this, this entire, there's an entire generation that filters everything through the Harry Potter lenses, all right? It, the, the Harry Potter is the only thing that they've ever read, ever. Maybe Twilight. And it got me thinking. J.J. Abrams is incredibly imitative, I don't think he's got an original bone in his body. He he talks a lot about the about the mystery box from you know I think it was his uncle or his grandfather was a was a stage magician and there was this this something about the mystery box right he likes to do that. But you look at something like Super Eight, or you look at something like The Force Awakens. And Abrams is just painting with a pastiche. He's just imitating somebody else's style. And I have to wonder about the, the imagination of modern-era creatives, people who are responsible for 
uh, all of these franchises and stuff. And I have to wonder how many of them are familiar with this stuff only because they grew up watching it. Well, I know Star Wars because I watch Star Wars. I know Star Trek because I watch Star Trek, and I'm going to bring it in. And, and Perch made a, made a comment about some of these people having the opportunity, when they finally get hired at DC or Marvel, they get to do fanfic. Fan fiction, fan, you know, and the, and and it seems like that's what everybody's doing. You know, Chris Chibnall's doing his Doctor Who fan fiction. Kurtzman is doing his Star Trek fan film, and and fan films, by and large, are not necessarily the best representation of that franchise. Cyberstop uh, says Harry Potter and Twilight are the peak of our culture. God, I hope not. <laughs> I really, I really hope not. Um, now, I you know, letting the director be the writer that to me is not necessarily a bad thing because, well, depend it depends on who it is. Because some directors start out as writers, some writers start out as directors. I mean, there there are people who cross over like that. As long as you understand the essentials of story and 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 plot structure and that kind of thing, I don't have a problem that much with directors and writers being the same person. But what informs creativity, I think has changed, especially over the last 10 or 20 years because you have the Tumblr crowd, you have the Twitter crowd, you have the TikTok crowd, you have the people who have been, you know, doing YouTube and <laughs> Cam1138 says, Teletubbies started it and Harry Potter finished it. That's entirely possible. And it is a scary thought. But I think the, the, the idea that you've got these people who are so so in inculcated into the social media generation and all of this stuff where uh, it has to be it has to be completely spelled out you you don't trust your audience to to fill in the blanks or or do anything uh, to engage in the story but i think if you go back you look at somebody like martin scorsese or steven spielberg or george lucas lucas especially uh, when crafting Star Wars, drew from a lot of other influences. And I have to wonder now, especially given the way public schools are, and how much emphasis there's on how much emphasis there is on books that we need to ban and burn rather than books that we need to read. And all of the people that are doing things now, are informed by the movies that they've watched, the TV shows they've watched. I mean, how many people have been writing dialogue like Buffy the Vampire Slayer from Joss Whedon? I mean, we've got an entire generation of people who think that scripts should look like Joss Whedon wrote them all. You know, all of the dialogue. Everybody talks like this. Well, no, they don't. Nobody does. But that's the filter. That's the filter is what we've what what has come before. But for those people who made the iconic things, 
Roddenberry and Spielberg and Lucas and Scorsese and, and Coppola and, and uh, Brian De Palma, all, all of these guys remember prior to 2001 in 1969, there were not a whole lot of high-dollar, top-shelf quality, A-grade science fiction movies. They were all, you know, a bunch of low-budget B movies you'd you'd see at the drive-in. You know, the schlock movies and the and the 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 shock horror films and the exploitation films and that kind of thing. They weren't highbrow. They weren't intelligent, you know, literary type of things. You have the David Deere stood still. You have Forbidden Planet, Fantastic Voyage. But by and large, a lot of movies that came out of that time were stuff like Invaders from Mars or The Blob or, you know, Killer Ants from Outer Space or whatever, you know, Santa Santa Conquers Mars, those kind of things. And you look at the backgrounds of these people. Roddenberry was a police officer. He was in the military. Uh, you know, George Lucas was a, was a hot rod, you know, a gearhead. And he, he went to college and studied anthropology. You know, it, it's, it's those kinds of things that I think we, we forget that it's important to have an exposure to other things besides all of the Star Wars, all of the Star Treks, you know. I mean, we've watched, you know, Mindy and I just got finished watching the entire run of Stargate Atlantis because she's never seen it before. But the the other parts of these things is that there are other things, because I was sitting last night and I was thinking, you know, I, I should probably sit and watch a Western at some point here pretty soon. Because I haven't, I, haven't I haven't sat and watched a Western in a while. We get into this box. And I think it limits us. And I say us generically, not us as us. But I think it limits us creatively because we limit the exposure to what, what influences us. And I got to thinking all of this, you know, what are some of the things that influenced Spielberg and, and that crowd? <clears throat> and are are the modern day creative people ignoring all of this stuff? I mean, you look at David Weber's Honor Harrington books or Star Trek, either one of them, and they're both influenced by C.S. Forrester, the Horatio Hornblower series. N- not science fiction. Horatio Hornblower is 1800s Navy, or, you know, British Navy on the high seas type of thing. But it's an adventure, and it's and it's classic literature that had a profound effect on, especially David Weber with the with the Honor Harrington stuff. I mean, Honor Harrington. And, and Horatio Hornblower are cut from the same cloth. It's almost the exact same kind of trajectory through the books that one that the lead character follows both in both lines. And 
Jim Kirk is kind of a Horatio Hornblower a little bit. I mean, there is some influence there, but you also saw that when Ronberry was first pitching the story, he was pitching it as Wagon Train to the Stars. He was going in terms of, uh, of comparing it to a Western, and the lexicon of creativity, the lexicon of imagination was such that he could do that kind of thing because people then understood, well, this is Wagon Train to the Stars. This is... Uh, this is to kill a mockingbird on Mars, you know, those kinds of things. Nowadays, I don't think you could make that kind of a pitch because people have limited themselves to what it is that they, this is, this is the thing. This is the box that I'm going to live in. And I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. But you look at some of the, some of the classic literature and how much it can be an influence and how, how, strong of an influence it could be on the kinds of stories that you want to tell. If you're if you're a writer in genre science fiction, fantasy, horror, whatever, if if you're not paying attention to classic literature, I think you're shortchanging yourself a little bit. <clears throat> and I've got some recommendations I want to make. Now some of these books, th these these classics some of them show up on a lot of different lists. Some of the lists are a little bit different from what people do, but I'm just going to scroll through a few of these. This is Penguin Random House. Uh, Pride and Prejudice, To Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird is being banned from schools because of the subject matter. With people not understanding or wanting to ignore the fact that the entire book is basically an indictment of racism. But the people don't, they don't think it through. They just see, well, people, people are treating the black man bad, so we need to get rid of the book. Well, the whole book is an indictment of that kind of behavior. How many of you have read To Kill a Mockingbird? Actually read it. Um, going through here some more. The Great Gatsby by F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, I've read it. I don't like it. I didn't enjoy it. But I can understand why it's stuck around all this time. Because, you know, it's this... It's a... It's an, again, it's an indictment. It's a, it's a look at the, the rich elitists and how how hollow their lives are which might or might not apply to everybody who's rich I'm, I'm not saying that everybody who's anybody who's got money is shallow but that's essentially what this book is about uh, 100 years of solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez uh, in cold blood by Truman Capote how many people have read Truman Capote I will admit I have not read that one yet. Wide Sargasso Sea is on this. Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Now there's there's a science fiction book that's been around, but that's been 1932. How many people have read this book? If you haven't, you should, because what we're seeing in real life these days, <clears throat> the drug that's in... Brave New World, I would say that nowadays that drug is social media. That's just me. Uh, 
Let's see. Let's go in through here. Jane Eyre. Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Um, Call of the Wild by Jack London. That's, that's a good book. It's an adventure in Alaska. You know, and you could take The Call of the Wild and you could set it on, a, on another planet and you could still tell the same story. You know, a, a, an Earth colony. Uh, the the chrysalids by John Wyndham, persuasion by Jane, there's a lot of Jane Austen on this on this thing. Moby Dick by Herman Melville. <coughs> okay, um, let's talk about Moby Dick for a second. I read this in high school, and I've said this before. Moby Dick is probably one of the most boring books that I have ever ever read but having said that <clears throat> I do understand why it's a classic because if you if you distill it down this is a story about obsession it's a it's and it's not just Ahab's obsession but Ahab is uh, Ahab is the is the the epitome is the personification and of course yes naturally you have comparisons to Star Trek 2 because Khan quotes Moby Dick and I I would venture to say that there are two Ahabs in Star Trek 2 Khan is an Ahab because he wants revenge on the white whale that did him wrong right he, he wants revenge on Kirk but I would say also that Kirk is an Ahab type of character because his enemy, in, in this story especially, is time and age. And he even says it at some point. He says, I feel old and worn out. And, you know, McCoy calls him on it and says, you've got to get back to your command before you turn into one of your antiques. Age is... Jim Kirk's white whale and his way of battling it is to dive into the action right Khan's battle is you know he's haunted by the ghosts of all of the people who died on SETI Alpha 5 including his wife and he blames Kirk for it Kirk is the whale and it's I, I get it. I understand this book, but it's boring as all get out. I mean, it really is. You, you could trim... Well, nowadays, you could trim two-thirds of the book out and still have the same story, essentially. Because this way... I mean, it's told from Ishmael's point of view. And there's a lot of description of the water... And it's boring. But having said all of that, I do recommend that you read it because then you can say you've read it. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Here's um, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. The Death of the Heart by Elizabeth Bowen. See, a lot of these books were written way back. 
Tass of D'Urbabils by Thomas Hardy, 1891. Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, 1823. Um, let's see here. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1984. Everybody needs to read 1984 because we're living it now. Uh, Budden Brooks by Thomas Mann. The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. That's probably the most recent one, 1987. The Code of the Woosters. Uh, Dracula by Bram Stoker, 1897. Lord of the Rings. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Also a book that's on the ban list because there's a slave in it. Even though the whole thing is kind of a, well, he's not a slave. He's my best friend. He's, he's my buddy. We're going down the river on an adventure together. I don't know. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. <sighs> I've read it. You need to read it. But, you know. Uh, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Uh, let's see here. Some of these others. Middlemarch by George Eliot. You know, you, ought, you also ought to consider reading some poetry, too, because there's there are some poetry that could impact how you look at things. Poetry is really great for word choice um, because you have you have the economy of brevity there. You have the 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 limitation of what you can say, depending on the pattern and the and the structure of the poem that you're writing. You have to be very careful in your word choice in order to make everything work in a poem. And it it's a good exercise, at least, in picking and determining how you say a thing. Because that can have an impact as well. Because if you're describing somebody shouting or yelling or gesticulating violently or screaming or howling. I mean, there's various different ways that you can talk about somebody who's speaking up loudly, and and it all has a different a different characterization that comes with it. Uh, the Iliad by Homer. I would put the Odyssey on there as well. Uh, here's Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. Brideshead Revisited. See, there's not a lot of science fiction in this classic literature. Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Uh, here's another one from George Eliot, The Mill on the Floss. Um, but, you know, Les Miserables from Victor Hugo. I would also put The Count of Monte Cristo on here as well as uh, The Three Musketeers. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I mean, there's The Outsiders from S.E. Hinton. The, this stuff, here's The Count of Monte Cristo here. Ulysses by James Joyce. There's a lot of things on here that are not not books. If you're into science fiction, these are not books that you're probably going to be uh, have a tendency to pick up. But I would say you probably want to because there are um, there are influences, especially in the older crowd that makes films. I would expect that Christopher Nolan probably reads stuff like this. Um, and he's not older. I mean, he's he's a little bit, but he's not. Um, he's he he's not young like J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams is still young-ish, and he still has a lot to learn. 
but a lot of these a lot of these modern storytellers i think probably have not uh dipped as deep into the waters of classic literature as perhaps earlier filmmakers and storytellers have because their influence now is you know their their lexicon is the movies and tv shows we all grew up on star trek doctor who um battlestar galactica buck rogers that kind of thing and you don't have <clears throat> you don't have you know, we're not we're not allowed to have comedians like George Carlin or uh, uh, Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy. I mean, Dave Chappelle running into all of the criticism that he's running into. The, the modern era sensibilities. People are so, so sensitive about every little thing. And people are looking to be insulted and offended by every little thing. And we're not allowed to do this kind of thing. I mean, Rick, Ricky Gervais made an excellent point on all of this. He's like, I, you, you guys, you know, don't want to hear any of this stuff. But I don't care. And that's the way, that's the way comedians should be. Comedians poke, poke at everybody. The court jester. The court jester was a very important position in medieval times. And, you know, their function was to call out the king when the king was doing something stupid. Ish. Uh, Can1138, they're weak and they're frauds. Time to stop caring. I'm not sure that they're frauds so much, but I think that they're limited. I think their imaginations are not fueled by the same things because now you're into the second and third generations of this stuff. Because <clears throat> you have your first generations, uh, your Spielberg and Lucas and De Palma and you know Stephen King. You know, Stephen King's not really first generation either because prior to Stephen King, you've got Robert Block, you've got Mary Shelley, you have H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, we're not we're not allowed to talk about H.P. Lovecraft anymore. H.P. Lovecraft was a racist, so we can't we can't read any of his books. You know, Orson Scott Card is uh, is a homophobe, so we we can't we can't read any of his books. You know, we we society, and I would I would put this as the twelve the twelve emotionally constipated crazy people on Twitter have determined that we're not allowed. We're not allowed to fill in the blanks, you know, with, with whatever it is that we're not allowed to do for that day. I mean, the, the list keeps growing of the various different things that we shouldn't be allowed to do. And it does speak to a lack of imagination and a lack of insight. Because reading various different types of stories, and I have to remind myself of this sometimes too, reading various types of stories gives you a little bit of a better understanding of people. Not just a certain type of people, but generally people. You know, because there are, you're going to run into uh, individuals who act various certain ways. They're rude. They're polite. They're 
innocent, they're naive, they're angry, you know, whatever types of persons, you're going to run into all types of persons in your life. And literature, and I'm and any, any kind of literature, not just the classics, but also classic science fiction, Heinlein, Asimov, Bradbury, um, Lovecraft, and McCaffrey, you know, Le Guin, that gives you insights into people. And I've told I've told my son this. You read more so you can experience without actually having to go through those experiences. You learn from other people's experience. You learn from other people's imagination of the various different scenarios. How do you handle it? How do you deal with it? What do you learn from this? And now you have folks like Chris Chibnall and J.J. Abrams and Alex Kurtzman and, and that crowd who are the descendants, metaphorically, of the Lucases and Spielbergs and, and Coppola. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have so many remakes and reboots is because that's all their, that's all their wheelhouse contains. I grew up watching this, so I'm going to make this. It's not, what if we take Moby Dick and uh, uh, Rawhide and uh, Flash Gordon and we put it all together in this new thing? I'm just making that up. But now that doesn't sound really kind of not a bad idea. Hmm. All right, I'll have to think about that. Anyway, it's, it's, read the classics. Read... C.S. Forrester, read Jane, uh, Jane Austen, mm-hmm. Alexander Dumas, Mary Shelley, Heinlein, Asimov. Start with the juveniles for Heinlein, Rocket Ship Galileo, Space Cadet. Yeah, the technology is outdated, but it's fun. And it gives you, I, I, still, I still quote Pie with a Fork. It gives you insights into people. You read Space Cadet, you you get to that pie with a fork scene, and you let me know because I still I still quote that. And I still use that to remind my kid. Certain people do certain things different ways from the way you do it. You have to learn to adapt. You have to learn to be open to other ideas, and that's some of the stuff that you learn learn from reading other literature about other people who are not exactly like you. And I think I think Alex Kurtzman and that that that, that ilk, that group of people need to read more. They need to get out more. They need to experience life more and and broaden their imaginations a little bit but it's not just them i think it's everybody you know you're we're starting to see a resurgence we're starting to see a, a growing amount of interest in the indie publishing uh, especially over on comics we're starting to see people on indiegogo and kickstarter the last three four five years and substack now is a thing people are starting to to create their own things and if you are creating your own thing 
I would suggest and recommend very strongly that you dive deep into various influences if you're going to pull from other material. Don't just dig in the well of George Lucas. Look at some of the other stuff. Look at F. Scott Fitzgerald and Charles Dickens and William Shakespeare and Homer and even even the philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Descartes. Look at uh, look at history. John Donne, uh, Alex uh, uh, Alex uh, Alex de, de Tocqueville. I'd say that right, de Tocqueville. You know, look at history. Look at anthropology. Look at philosophy. Look at uh, various different sciences. Now, I know it's not going to get you a job if you study it in college, the liberal arts and all of that and whatnot. But studying this kind of thing, at least a surface-level look, may give you some new things to think about, some new things to ponder, and... Maybe it gives you another angle from which you can approach whatever story that you want to tell. Uh, Cam says, read the first part of Atlas Shrugged, then stop. <laughs> Sci-Fi Snobs, it sounds like too much work. I'll just do Harry Potter in space. I, and and I'd, I'd be willing to read it. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Don't forget, uh, we've got other shows that are on this particular channel. Tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 Central, we've got a brand new H2O podcast. Mr. Harvey and I will be talking about something. I think right now the plan is to talk about Dune, except I haven't seen it yet. So I don't I don't know. We may end up talking about something else. But that's tonight at, uh, at 9 p.m. Eastern. And, of course, we do have uh, Foreign Bodies coming back this weekend on Saturday the 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Going to be visiting France uh, coming back this week, so we hope you join us for that. And, of course, uh, Bunker all this week uh, and coming up on the 27th, two days from now, day after tomorrow, Brink Stevens will be our guest. Uh, Christopher says, Capote's In Cold Blood is a fascinating read that really puts a face on both the victims and perpetrators of their savage murders. Yeah, well, I think, wasn't, isn't that one of, I want to say that was one of the first movies that Robert Blake was in. So, I, don't, I can't remember. It may, it, may, it may not have been Robert Blake. I don't know. All right, so uh, Ryan's still over on Twitch playing some uh, Celeste, so go check him out over there, twitch.tv slash sci-fi for me. If you're here live, you can go uh, look at that, give him some pointers, kibitz a little bit. Uh, Justin Case says, totally agree, way too much writing today is inspired by recent movies and games, and those are often based on ideas in novels from before World War II. I agree. Yep. Don't limit yourself. Go broaden your horizons and be back here tomorrow for more Live from the Bunker. Remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. 